So if you were to observe, uh, observe children, say a toddler, um, toddlers, children are constantly learning, constantly uh, observing the world around them, taking in sensory input. Uh, if you observe a toddler, their eyes are like going from this place to the next to the next. They're crawling into everything and they're sticking their finger into everything and they're grabbing everything and when they grab that thing, they stick that thing in their mouth, right? Because their mouth is another way that they experience uh, is a sense, right? They taste and they explore the world around them and so they stick everything in their mouth and you have to grab that pen or grab that uh, toxic piece of material or your dog Dookie, you have to keep them from putting it in their mouth. And um, so children are always learning. And if you had a device that visually displayed the brain activity of children, right, it would be like off the charts, right? Right? Constantly learning, constantly taking the world and absorbing the information from the world. And uh, the thing is, there's, you know, a lot of uh, kind of research and TED Talks out there about how as adults, when we, when we mature, become more responsible people, uh, that, kind of, that learning process, that curiosity slows down, right? And we begin to specialize in what we know, right? We, we go to school, we major in something, then we go to work and we just learn the things that we need to do Right, to function and get our job done and uh, be a responsible parent, be a responsible spouse, be a responsible adult. And we're less going around with this wide-eyed curiosity, sticking our fingers into things, right? Jumping into right, things we don't know about in a pile of leaves. Or, and we actually tend towards more caution, right? We become more conservative in our movements, right? We don't tend to like grow, go beyond you know, our, our space, right? Where we, what we are competent at, for instance, what we know, the things that we know, our knowledge base, right? If, if I'm in a conversation with people and they're talking, I tend to drive the conversation towards sports, right? Because I know sports, I know football, I know baseball, right? If it starts going into like types of automobiles, right? Uh, conversations about cars, I'm like, uh, uh, how about them Seahawks, right? So we tend to stay in our realm of competence, what we know. So what is that kind of movement uh, from this wide-eyed curiosity and always learning and always taking things into, you know, that process slowing down? How do adults learn effectively, right? Once we stop, stop wanting to learn, I mean, we're always learning but that learning process slows down. Uh, but what some educators in doing some research determine is that the way that adults uh, learn effectively and grow effectively is through, and I got this yesterday from a workshop, is through disorienting dilemmas, right? Things that disorient us, force us to learn and grow, right? Because we are pushed out of our safety zones. We're pushed out of those places that we are competent, those places that we know. And we're pushed into change, into transition, into crisis, right? And that disorients us. 
But in that disorientation, there's opportunity for growth. Like how you respond when you're disoriented and your life is kind of like, ah, I don't know what to do, right? I don't know what's the next step. I'm kind of confused, I'm in transition. What's going on? How we respond in those situations um, makes all the difference of, whether, of how we grow, whether or not we're gonna grow, whether or not we're gonna, our hearts will be stretched, our experiences will be stretched, um, our maturity as people, and our faith as, as spiritual people, as followers of Jesus Christ, whether our faith will be stretched. Because the other response in disorientation, um, not the faithful response, is whatever coping mechanism you tend to turn to, right, when you're disoriented. For me, defensiveness, anger, projection, blame, blaming other people. When I'm disoriented, I, I don't know where I'm at, I'm confused, I tend to be like, hey, you know, fight or flight and blame, right? And those are my go-to things. So, you know, what are, what are those things for you? And, um, Chapter 12 immediately follows chapter 11. We were in chapter 11 of Genesis last week, the Tower of Babel story. God confuses the language and people scatter, right? God puts in a disorienting dilemma, right? The people are saying, let's make a name for ourselves in building this tower. God is like, you're not the name maker. I make your name, right? My name needs to be glorified. Let's confuse their languages. And he dis, there's utter, this is like a prime example of disorientation, right? People are like, I don't understand you. People are babbling. We cannot complete this project because I don't understand you. You're speaking a different language. Disorientation, right? And scatters, right? When God does something like that in your life and people's lives, you need to pay attention, right? This is an opportunity. And you're like, oh my gosh, Dave, are you like a masochist? Are you you're looking for punishment and pain? But yes. <laughs> when we come to those times, those crossroads of confusion and disorientation, those are opportunities for growth. Because what God can do in those spaces is reorder how we've ordered our lives, right? To, to pry our fingers off of the things that we hold on to that give us security but aren't necessarily healthy for us or are limited. And pry our fingers off of those things and God says, now trust me. Right? In this time, in this place, right now, I want you to trust me. Are you with me, church? Trust me. So let's go... Uh, with some little family background. So at the end, between the Babel story and then here at the beginning of chapter 12, Abraham's call, the end of chapter 11, there's a little genealogy, right? It's uh, the genealogy of Shem, which was Noah's, one of Noah's son. So we're given the line of Shem. And so you go, you go down, this person had this many sons, this person had this many sons, and lived till this, and lived till this. You get all the way to the bottom, and you see Abraham's, Abram's father, Terah. 
you see Terah's line. Um, and Terah had three sons. He became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And there was a tragedy in the family, verse 28. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran, one of his sons, dies. Dies before his father. Um, and he dies in Ur, which was his, his birthplace. And if you kind of read between the lines, you see that after that, Terah grabs Abram, grabs Nahor, their sons and their sons' wives, just basically the extended family. And it says he begins to go, he moves towards Canaan, right? So you're like, wait, 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 wait a second. Isn't that what God calls Abraham in, verse, in chapter 12? Go to the land I'm going to show you. Go to the land of Canaan. But Abraham's fa- Abram's father has already been in this motion. But at the end of 11, we see that Terah comes to, they come to the city. And what is the name of the city? The name of the city is Haran. But with two R's in, in, in the common English Bible version. Um, and the dead son, the son, his son that died was named Haran as well. It's this kind of, you know, you kind of have to like play this out and think like, wow. It says that Terah stopped in that city and he lived out the rest of his life. So he goes, he's going towards Canaan and he stops halfway and he says, man, this city, it reminds me of my son who passed away. Same name. I'm just going to stay here. And maybe, I don't know, maybe he's tired. Right? Maybe he's sad. Maybe he's in so much mourning, he just can't move any forward. He's just holding on uh, to the past or holding on uh, to this place. Right? And Abram and all of the extended family stay, stay there. And so that's the background leading up uh, to Abram's call in chapter 12. Next, we, uh, next slide, we go to uh, a, the general structure of Genesis. So people divide Genesis into two main parts. Chapters 1 through 11 traces the primeval history. So primeval history is the history kind of of people in general before history <laughs> of specific people. Um, so 1 through 11, we are given the history of creation, the history of the first people, Adam and Eve, and the history of the fall of people, of sin, entering into the world. There's this history. Um, and then Genesis, after that, Genesis 12 uh, through 50, zooms in on God's redemptive history with a specific people, right? So at, at, at chapter 12, the story, begin, the narrative begins to zoom in on one particular man, Abram, and his family, right? And this is uh, the beginning of Israel, right? A specific people, a specific nation and their story. So 1 through 11, just humanity in general, like what's going on, and then zoom in 12 to 50. Uh, and so if you, re- if you examine those two parts a little further, you see that 1 through 11 focuses more on four events, right? And those four events are what? Creation, chapters 1 through 2, fall, chapters 3 through 5, the flood, 6 through 9, 
And, and then you have the table of nations and Babel and the scattering uh, creation of nations um, in Genesis 10 through 11. Uh, whereas chapters 12 through 50 uh, focuses on four individuals, four specific people and their family, their households, and their lines. Um, and a lot of us call that those people what? The patriarchs, right? The, the fathers of, you know, Israel. Father Abraham had many sons, right? And these are, we grew up, if you grew up in the church and went to Sunday school, you grew up with stories about Abraham and stories about Isaac and drama with Jacob and Esau and Joseph, this beautiful story of getting sold into slavery in Egypt by his own brothers and, uh, and then meeting, being reunited with his brothers and his father and this amazing story of renewal and redemption. Um, Genesis 12 through 50 focuses on these four patriarchs, these four individuals. Um, so I've kind of broken it down for you right there. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is about is the history of all humanity, the origins of all humanity. Genesis 12 through 50, the origins, uh, it focuses on the family of Abraham. Um, so from 12 on, the story begins to slow down, right? Between chapters 1 through 11, we're given 20 generations of people, right? Up to this point, we've gone through 20 generations. Uh, but in the next 39 chapters, we're focused on four generations. Um, and God begins to spend, or the scriptures begin to spend more time on the history of Israel um, than on the whole of creation, right? The story zooms in um, to the history of Israel. All right, next slide. Build an altar. So if you look at the text, um, one of the things that we see is that in Genesis 12, 1 through 9, in this short passage, Abram builds an altar twice, right? He builds an altar twice. So we see that in uh, verse, uh, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I give this land to your descendants. So Abraham built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. And then once again in verse 9, no, verse 8, from there he traveled toward the mountains east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I side. There he built an altar to the Lord and worshiped in the Lord's name. Uh, one point I just wanted to make about altars, building in altars. Um, we see that Abraham builds an altar twice in this passage. He's stopping in his journey, in the middle of his journey, to recognize and worship God. Right? And he calls, and it says, this is where he begins to call on the name of the Lord. And my question to us is, have we lost this notion of altar, right? Uh, we call this, some churches call this an altar. Some people call it a communion table. Um, but this is an altar because it's a place that we bring our offerings to God. Um, but I think in a, 
a little bit in our worship and in our, in our daily living, we've lost this notion of altar. Right? We're very busy pursuing the blessings in our life. But do we stop in the journey to call on God, to acknowledge and to worship Him? Because the Lord shows up to Abraham. His father has just died. And basically saying, I want you to continue that journey that your father began. Right? Leave everything. Leave your land. Leave your family and your father's household for the land I will show you. Right? And that in itself is like, can you tell me more about this land, God? <laughs> right? Like, where exactly longitude and latitude? Can I Google Maps it? Right? Is there, what kind of neighborhoods are there? Are there good schools in that place? Like, what's going on there? No, it's just, oh, don't worry. I'm going to show you. Right? Just go. I'll show you. Right? Most of us are, right? You had me at uh, no. Right? <laughs> you had me at no. And I will make a great nation and will bless you. Right? I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. And this is awesome, right? right? All of us strive to be, to, be, to be blessed by God. right? And a lot of times we, in, in Christian circles, we hone on this word blessing. Like what does it mean to be blessed? Like, I'm feeling blessed. God has blessed me. If I'm faithful, he will bless us. If I give faithfully, he'll bless us, you know, tenfold back. If, you know, God bless, I'm blessed. Blessed to be in this place with my friends and my church. Blessed to be at the Seahawks game, right? (laughs) Cheering Russell Wilson on. Blessed to be blah, 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 right? Um, And in this, in our culture, this word blessing is tied to material things. It tends to be tied to material things, right? Blessed to have a house, blessed to get this, blessed, um, blessed to have this. But if you read further in God's call of Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. And we kind of have to look, read forward. God says, leave your father's household and leave your land to a land I will show you. Go, trust me, just go. And I will bless you and I'll bless you to be a blessing to other people. Right? And if Abram had just focused on the land piece of it, the material blessing, it would have been an epic fail, Right? Looking back on the rest of his life, he'd be like, God, you jacked me. You duped me. Because in his lifetime, Abram never possessed the land of Canaan. Right? He never possessed the land. The des- descendants after like, settled the land and came into it. But Abram never, the only land um, that he possessed was a little parcel of land like where there's a cave and he could bury Sarah, his wife. Right? He did not, he wasn't blessed in that sense, right? But God says, God is saying, he's saying I'm blessed you, but it's not I'm going to bless you with this property, right? I'm going to bless you with ownership over all these lands. It's I'm going to make a great nation out of you. 
And Abram's like, man, I wish I read the fine print on that. <laughs> right? Like, oh, my descendant, like, my posterity will have all of these things, but not me. You're going to make a great nation out of me, but I'm not going to get to, you know, kick back in our pool and our sauna and, like, drink my ties. Right? It's my kids and my kids' kids. He's like, ah, you got me. Right? He never possessed. In fact, Abraham wandered a lot. Right? This, these following stories are about Abraham just bumbling his way through the land. And just like, oh. And um, on top of it, he's 75 years old. Right? He's like, I'm 75. If you're going to make a great nation out of me, we've got to get busy. We've got to get started now. Right? Um, but I think part of the blessing is that journey. Right? That journey and walk with God is God's presence in his life. That's that relational connection and that covenant relationship, that is the blessing. Right? And that's going to play out through the Old Testament. Right? My presence goes with you. Right? With, in Exodus, with Moses, Moses is complaining, I will be with you. Right? That's God's. Here's the promise, but I will go with you. Right? And that I will be with you is the same in the Gospels. Right? Jesus is Emmanuel, meaning God with us, right? My presence goes with you. That's the gift. That's the blessing. And that's the relationship that was broken in the garden, right? Adam and Eve walked with God freely and openly in the garden, right? And when they turned and rebelled, there was a kind of a break in that fellowship, in that open walking. And... The story of God's redemptive history throughout Scripture and then on to Jesus Christ and Jesus' saving work in our lives is God's creative acts of reinitiating, right? That fellowship with humanity, that relationship with us, that trust covenant relationship. Um, the second question you may be asking is. Oh, so we're honing in on just the Israelites, right? Like some people ask me, do you have a favorite child, right? As, Who's your favorite, Isaiah or Cameron? And it's like, oh, you can't ask that, <laughs> right? Even though I know I was my parents' favorite child, it's clear. Both my siblings acknowledge it, but I, I will refute it. I'll be like, no, they loved you just as much. As they love me. And they're like, no. <laughs> right? They're like, what's up with this? God has favorites. Right? He's picking a particular people to bless. To have a special blessing and love from God. And I think, yeah. In one sense, there's a mystery. This idea of election. It's a mystery. What is God up to? But I think it's, it's the uh, gracious response um, to people making a name for themselves in Babel and scattering to the nations. And God's gracious kind of idea and response is to begin to call a people 
that are identified as God's people. Not so that they can have a holy huddle and a, like a country club of being God's people, but to be people that also are not afraid to scatter, are not afraid to go and be sent. Does that make sense? Go and be sent, not to build our towers or not to sit on our hands, but to go and be sent to be a blessing, to be a, a servant people, or to be leaders, right? God's people are to be leaders to the rest of the world, to bless those, to be a blessing. Um, and um, in ch you know, you hear in church circles, uh, people talking about, are you a missional church? Being a missional church, missional, missional, missional church. What's a missional church? And basically a missional church, um, that kind of idea, um, if you read Guder, his book, Missional Church, he talks about a missional church is a church that moves away from programs, right? The idea of programs being its identity. Like we rest our hat on our programs and drawing people into our programs and their identity comes from being a people sent, right? A church, as a church, we're sent. And so church, in that sense, church becomes less uh, a place that people come to, like a building or like, you know, a place I'm going. We say this all the time, I'm going to church, right? I'm going to church. And that's just part of talking, but um, in a sense that kind of, reveals our belief system around like is church just a place and something we come to and programs we build or are we the church does that make sense do you see that distinction we are the church we are the church <laughs> and we're sent out to be the church in the world and as the church we gather right to be formed to be taught to worship together but in this gathering the purpose is to go into the world and so identity does not solely come from our gathering together identity also comes from our going out from our gathering to be a blessing to other people are you with me that's the missional church um abram is very faithful right because he goes he, does, he, has, he doesn't have all the information, right? Um, and he goes. He, he allows his life and his family's life to be disoriented, to go to a, new, a strange place, to be a stranger in a strange place, to pick up, uproot, and just go because God said. Um, and he goes. Um, but I think one of the things that we, as we continue in Genesis that we have to look at is, you know, as for me, like for me, I grew up in the church. I grew up going to Sunday school and studying Father Abraham, Isaac, all the patriarchs. And there's a way that when we read the patriarchs, when we study them, we, we study them or we talk of them as archetypes, right? As these ideal faithful people. But if you read scripture, they're anything <laughs> anything but ideal, right? Actually, their families are quite dysfunctional. And right? if you read the rest of this chapter, 
<laughs> you see some messed up stuff, right? Uh, first of all, um, Abraham's brother is married to his half-sister, if you read the end of chapter of 11, right? And there's just mo- all these more intermarrying. And Abraham, they go to Egypt, right? He, again, he's wandering. He's not going to Canaan. He's kind of wandering. And he's so afraid of Pharaoh. And because Sarah is, like, beautiful. And he knows, like, she's beautiful. And so he's afraid of, you know, getting killed, knocked off because someone wants his wife. So he's afraid of Pharaoh. So he goes to Sarah. Right? Oh, tell them you're my sister. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I was at a party and I was kind of with Janice, you know, my lovely wife, and I was... We were introducing ourselves to some new people. And I was like, oh, and here's Janice. This is my sister. Woo, I'd be in so much trouble. Bam, right right there. You're like, you're a sister? You're, you're, are you ashamed of me? You're not proud of me? That's Abram, right? Just tell Pharaoh, you're my sister. Right? This kind of coward, cowardly response. Um, and instead of saying, she's my wife, boy, you know, you want to step? Uh, <laughs> I don't care if you're Pharaoh, shoot. Um, you can't have her, she's my woman. Um, so you'll see throughout the, you know, reading this that actually there's a lot of dysfunction and messed up drama, right? It's, so the scriptures are trying to uh, uplift these people as, hey, what it means to be faithful is to be perfect like Father Abraham, who had many sons, right? God said, go, and he went, right? He dropped everything and went. No, it's go, and it's messy along the way. But God just reveals things step by step sometimes. You don't get the whole picture. And we stumble through that, our journey, right? And it's okay, right? We mess up, we're not perfect. God uses imperfect people. But he's just saying, take that step. I don't want you to be able to do the whole thing and know the whole thing and get it perfect right off the bat. I just want you to take that step of faith. Whatever that is, what does it mean to go out, to be sent, to say, yes, God, I will go. Right? And it's a little, I'm a little afraid, and I'm not sure, and, you know, I kind of feel different. I don't know what's going on, and uh, I don't feel as competent or secure in my footing, but I will go, because you're sending me, right? And I'll just take this next step, and, and then... You, you begin to doubt, and you're like, oh, you go back. I don't know, that was wrong. But you take that step again, and it's messy. You don't see the whole picture. Are you with me? God uses imperfect people. God calls imperfect people. And if you ever feel that your, your life is too messy to be a Christian, too messy to be a leader in the church, too messy to do God's work, too messy, right, for whatever, right? There's a lot more messy people 
that God has called in Scripture. And the thing is to just take that step. Take a step and let God's grace um, lead the way. Amen. Embrace the disorienting dilemmas that God puts in your life. That's the challenge. God doesn't just bless us to just bless us. God blesses so that we will serve and bless. Right? Don't sit on your hands with what God has given you. The gifts, the resources, um, the mind, the heart, the love, the time. Right? Don't just sit on the things that he's given you, but go. Allow yourself to be sent. Um, 